For the week of Thursday, April 4th, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk about innovative legal strategies to achieve justice and equality in the Trump era. Robert Sy is a professor of constitutional law at American University, and he joins us to discuss his new book, Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation. We also get his thoughts on the current fight to get the complete Mueller report released. And speaking of that very thing, in our Week in Review segment, we talk about how Democrats can regain the narrative around Trump and the Mueller report, and about how we as progressives and activists can effectively respond during what may be a long battle ahead. We also have our weekly calls to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm, and we have a special treat this week. Seattle singer-songwriter Harris Schwartzreich just released a brand new album called My Inner Voice Will Ring. He's going to be hosting a release party at Stoneway Cafe in Fremont on April 6th, and we will close this week's show with a single from the album. That is all ahead, so stay with us. In the Trump era, the fight for justice and equality can sometimes feel insurmountable. In addition to a hostile White House and Senate, the Supreme Court is likely going to be majority conservative for a generation, meaning that we are in need of innovative legal approaches to protect and advance progressive ideals. My guest, Robert Sy, is a professor in constitutional law at American University, and he's the author of a recent book that details how important legal battles for equality have actually been won by focusing on narrower, more practical legal strategies. Strategies. The book is called Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation, and we are so glad that it has brought him on the show to talk with us today. Robert Sy, welcome. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. So, you know, I want to start by talking just broadly about the concept of equality. So you say that while it is, of course, sound morally, that couching legal arguments around equality may not be the best approach in a practical sense. Uh, but, you know, the concept of equality is present in our founding documents. So talk a little bit about why it's not always an effective legal approach. Sure. Um, the idea of equality is, a, is an ancient idea, and it has both uh, religious and secular roots. Uh, it's very much wrapped up with you know, our liberation as a colony from Great Britain. Um, but it turns out that uh, there, there are certain features of um, this idea of equality that you know, over the years has, has led us into sort of a series of, of roadblocks, right? And a lot of the roadblocks aren't um, merely conceptual ones, but rather they're practical ones. So the roadblocks I talk about in the book include um, people's fear that if we extend equality um, to somebody who hasn't had it before, that it might destroy or degrade the particular social good. We, we see these, um, this concern sort of arising in um, legal disputes over things like uh, education. So when uh, all white schools try to keep out African-American students, they fear that somehow it would change the quality or nature of the education. Uh, we, we saw it more recently in the fight over same-sex marriage that um, uh, defenders of opposite-sex marriage, uh, traditional marriage if, if you prefer, were worried that it somehow uh, changed the very institution of marriage if same-sex couples uh, could be allowed to access that institution. So, um, so those are some of the worries. Uh, other worries include things like 
uh, fear of political blowback, right, backlash if um, some marginalized group is is granted access. And, um, you know, and, and we, we see that, for example, in some fights over um, how we should treat uh, undocumented migrants, right, that people might get very upset um, if migrants can kind of come and go as they please. Uh, I think that's one of the things that is um, a major stumbling block today in terms of how we how we treat uh, immigrants. Right. Well, you know, you just you spoke about blowback. And one of the unintended results is something that you refer to as a, quote, tragic precedent. Uh, you cite Plessy v. Ferguson. That's the so-called separate but equal ruling on segregation. So Plessy's lawyers argued on the basis of equality that Louisiana had denied Plessy his rights under the 13th and 14th Amendments, but obviously it, the, the ruling wasn't favorable. And these outcomes, you note, can demoralize proponents of equality. Can you talk more broadly about the fallout from these so-called tragic precedents? Yeah, sure. I mean, you, you basically laid out the facts of Plessy, and you're absolutely right that one of the things that I, that, that I uh, want readers to think about, and especially readers who are activists and lawyers who care about equality, uh, is that um, it's not it's not sort of you know a straight ahead charge. Um, equality is won in in this sort of zigzag fa- uh, fashion where you know you win some and you certainly have some setbacks. But as you're sort of suggesting, you don't want the setbacks to be so terrible um, that you uh, end up having um, you know these landmarks created, these tragic precedents that talk about like Plessy versus Ferguson um, that really are real are, are difficult to um, uh, reverse. But also, they end up demoralizing activists. They end up dissipating their energy, and um, they end up they end up causing people to turn their attention elsewhere. You know, we we have so many problems in society to try to grapple with, and uh, and it's and it's terrible when everybody's uh, energy is sort of drained in another direction. So, you know, in in the Plessy case, um, you're absolutely right. The court ends up taking up the frontal challenge uh, raised um, to racially segregated uh, trains, and they don't really see what the big deal is. Um, and they end up writing a decision that's extremely uh, dismissive. It rejects the equality argument and says, hey, you know, why is this guy complaining about wanting uh, to sit next to uh, a white person on the train? There's nothing really of value here in the, in the justice's mind. Um, and then they say some other terrible things like, um, you know, if the African-American uh, person on the train feels offended or troubled, then it's just a figment of their imagination, and I'm summarizing. And this is a sort of terrible way to talk about the indignities that are part of being treated differently on account of race. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of the tragic aspect of that decision as well. And what I do in the, uh, in the, in the book um, is I invite the readers to go back to that moment and to see that there were actually a variety of other arguments that the justices could have uh, followed instead of an outright rejection of the racial equality argument. And, um, you know, for example, one of the arguments uh, was that there was a sort of budding, uh, a budding notion of a right to travel and that that um, may have been a th- like a thinner way, an alternative way of vindicating some notion of a right that was being uh, interfered with by uh, Louisiana's uh, segregation law without um, doing something more expansive. And there are other sort of techniques I talk about in the book, such as uh, saying that the, the regulation is a sort of encroachment on Congress's 
uh, effort to regulate interstate commerce. And this is sort of technical, but uh, if the court had gone that way, then it wouldn't have had to say something so terrible in defending uh, racial segregation. Well, right. So this is getting into sort of what you outline in the book as being areas of legal challenge that have successfully protected or advanced equality um, by aiming at it indirectly. So you talk about fair play, uh, the primacy of reason, avoiding cruelty, and protecting free speech. So I'd love to take just a couple of, of examples and talk about how they worked. So in the fairness approach, you talk about the case of Brown v. Mississippi. This is another uh, racial case. This is not the Brown that most people are familiar with. Can you talk about uh, that case and how the fairness argument won out? Sure. This is uh, uh, this is a, a historical moment when um, you know we're talking about Jim Crow justice uh, in, in the South and sort of mid late nineteen uh, thirties, and um, a a white planter in Mississippi was discovered dead in his home. And the suspicion um, fell on uh, a handful of African-American um, sort of workers in the area. And the sort of sheriff in the in the county and his deputies went around and started rounding these men up. And, um, and they didn't just sort of talk to them. And, um, instead, they, they engaged in a series of uh, horrific actions. Um, uh, Brown himself was uh, taken by a posse to a tree. And they strung him up the tree and simulated a, a lynching, um, and they they demanded that he confess. He refused to confess. Said, "I'm innocent. I'm innocent." They let him back down, and then they sort of ran him back up the tree. And then um, they later beat um, Brown into into giving a confession, and and the other defendants also they 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 beat at, uh, at the uh, down at the station uh, until they sort of um, said whatever they um, you know the officers wanted to hear mm-hmm. uh, wanted and and so. What happens is that when this when the defendants say, "Hey, you know, we we've been denied our rights," um, the whole country sort of um, is watching uh, the case as it unfolds, and um, as the case is sort of in the Mississippi Supreme Court, the Mississippi Supreme Court um, kind of handles the the case in a very formalistic way, and what they say is, um, you know, as far as we're concerned, um, these defendants all got a fair trial; they all had a lawyer. They all got to see the evidence, and they all got to sort of um, have a chance to sort of say, oh, no, you know, I didn't mean what I said. Um, And all of the death sentences were um, upheld. And this is an outrage, right, because not only was there sort of torture involved, um, but um, it's pretty clear that the whole world sees that uh, these are not the kind of techniques that would be used against white suspects, right? Um, so there's a very strong racial discrimination quality to the case. So when the Supreme Court of the United States uh, takes the case, and they do take the case, um, I think it's a bit of a struggle to to, to expect that the court is going to be able to vindicate uh, the equality argument. And they don't even do it. They don't even try. Um, there are a lot of reasons for this. I mean, for one thing, the notion of equality uh, as it relates to constraining police conduct is not – is not really there, and it's not much better now. I was going to say, certainly yeah. wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that was that's your thought. Is it's not much better um, today? But even then, it was unthinkable that the notion of equality could come in and um, you know constrain what what police officers do. And so they don't even go there. Um, but neither do they throw up their hands, which is a very important point. And what I say in the book is, I say this is a really great aha moment for all of us that. Even though everyone sees this as an uh, instance of of, of racial inequality, that 
um, you know, despite the obstacles here that are both sort of uh, legal, institutional, um, the people sense there's a deep injustice, so they don't throw up their hands. Instead, what they do is they find another way to render justice. And that other way is, uh, as you alluded to, the notion of fairness, right? Uh, due process, fair play. The, the due process clause embodies a lot of these sort of common sense ideas like fair play that most of us accept on a deep level. And that's what the justices end up doing is they say, you know, let's just forget them about the notion of equality for the moment. But if we just focus on the integrity of the legal system, right, it's it's an abomination that um, the, the judge, um, the jury could rely on such evidence, right, that is produced through a kind of racialized terror. And the court says, you know, however you got this evidence, right, uh, it is fundamentally unfair for the court later to use it. And so the whole judgment is, in a sense, corrupted by the actions that occurred before. And you see, it, 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 it's pretty ingenious because um, the court doesn't have to uh, pronounce on um, kind of the morality of the behavior right. of the particular individuals involved, although they certainly deserved it, right? The sheriff, the deputies, all these people who perpetrated these acts of violence deserve to be called out. There's no question about that. But if that's what you want, sometimes that gets in the way of justice. Yeah. And they, they don't go down that path. Uh, instead, they're, they're happy enough to uh, set aside the sentences here on the ground that the procedures themselves were morally problematic, right? Uh, and and I think that's a win, and and that we should all sort of take take some lessons from it. I agree. I mean, I think there is a, a a tendency and an understandable one for us to equate uh, justice with morality. But if it's the outcome that stands, and of course the precedent that stands, that may be a more important legal principle. Um, you also talk about the avoidance of cruelty as a legal strategy. I want to talk about that a little bit because you devote a, a lot of that chapter to the detainees at Guantanamo. But you start by citing a very elementary case that really lays this principle bare. So a San Francisco sheriff in the early 20th century cut the braid of a Chinese national named Ho Akao that he had uh, arrested for sleeping in a, a place that was a, apparently not a place you were allowed to sleep in. So tell us about the legal press, uh, precept of avoiding cruelty and how that worked as an argument here. Yeah, so the the, the, the basic idea of avoiding cruelty, um, also like fair play and equality, go way back. And... Um, there's some similarities between the notion of, of, of trying to avoid cruel treatment or punishment uh, and the notion that our you know, legal and political policies and practices uh, need to be fair uh, as much as possible. Um, yeah, there, are a lot, there, there seems of, to be some overlap between the, the anti-cruelty and the, and the fairness argument. Absolutely. And, 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 and both ideas also overlap with equality. And that's one of the great things is that um, there, are, there are deep connections uh, between all of these ideas. And, um, but there's some differences that can cause the conversation to change slightly um, so that we can avoid some of the obstacles that we often see in, uh, when we're just sort of making the straight ahead equality argument. But in the case that you've sort of described, um, you've got basically anti-immigrant sentiment that is um, you know, taken over California. And there's been a sort of economic downturn, and a lot of people in California at this time are blaming um, the Chinese uh, workers, right? They're all men. Uh, they can't bring any of their wives or children here. 
Uh, and and so they're being blamed. And so the city of San Francisco decide to enact a number of ingenious laws to try to uh, kind of push them out of the city. And one of those laws uh, is a law that is what those of us in the field of constitutional law describe as race neutral, meaning the statute doesn't mention race at all. But um, it, you know anyone who's living at that time would know that they designed the law because they really wanted to do something about uh, Chinese people. And so what the law said was nobody in the city of San Francisco could live in an apartment um, uh, uh, unless each person that was living in a particular place had X number of you know, feet uh, in the apartment. And so what that meant was that the practice of a lot of these migrants where they were sort of packing in these apartments um, and so they could save enough money to send home to the families, like they couldn't do that anymore. And if that was something they could, couldn't do anymore, then it was going to be very hard for them to save money. They might have to move on, right? So, so they passed that law. It was race neutral. And then there was another aspect um, of the regime where it said that um, the, uh, you know, if you wound up in, um, in violation of the law uh, and you were taken to the local jail, then they would cut your hair. And uh, this was um, designed specifically to frighten the Chinese men who wore their, uh, their hair at that time in this long sort of braided queue. Uh, and the thought of having that hair cut uh, was um, was very frightening, right? It was a socially stigmatizing possibility. So what's really great about this case uh, and fascinating about it is that when this is challenged, um, uh, and this goes all the way up to uh, the su Supreme Court, right? Um, the justice uh, who was riding circuit, uh, a lone justice representing the Supreme Court of the United States, he um, is Justice Stephen Field. And he basically says that this regime, though it's uh, race neutral, violates both the idea of equality uh, and the anti-cruelty principle. And um, what's great about this is then that either way you slice it, however way you look at it, right, um, it's a problem. And what a case like this teaches us is that two different routes can lead you to basically the same place. Right. And, you know, this is something that we may well want to keep in mind right now, uh, particularly as we talk about laws that are designed to make things hard for immigrants. Um, it, it brings to mind Trump's travel ban, um, his efforts to stifle immigration. We'll get to those in just a second. But I, I want to talk about your argument about reason. Um, so you note how New Yorkers successfully sued the NYPD over its stop and frisk program, and they used an argument based around reason reason uh, that resulted in a ruling that protected equality. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So um, I, I devote a whole chapter to the idea of what I call the rule of reason, which is which sounds fancy, but really is just another way of saying that facts matter. Um, and especially in, in, in this age, right, where so many people are denying that there is something called empirical reality, that everyone is sort of making up their own version of the facts, that we can't have even the idea of law unless we, we hold fast to the idea that we should all be involved in this sort of joint search for the truth, right? Even though there can be some differences of interpretation of what that truth is, we can't give up on the search for it. And this chapter basically says that the, the facts matter, the truth matters, because truth and our insistence upon finding truth is connected to equality because 
Um, there's, you know, if you give up on searching for the truth, then you won't find the evidence of the bias that you need to find. Um, and also, you won't be interested in seeing certain things like um, overbroad generalizations or cultural stereotypes. For example, there are a lot of laws that get enacted where um, politicians think that um, uh, you know a certain group, whether you're black, you're Hispanic, you're a migrant, right, or uh, you're Chinese, right, in another era, um, that that mere membership in that group means that you have a greater propensity to uh, commit some sort of um, uh, you know criminal act. Mm. And there are a lot of reasons to say this is this is not only false, but it's not the way. Uh, we should be solving crime. And the Fourth Amendment specifically says, right, you have to have um, individualized suspicion that somebody has done something wrong, not, you know, uh, assuming that um, your mere membership in some social group uh, makes you makes you a criminal. And that's what's going that's what happened in, um, in, in the New York situation. So to bring it back to your original question, um, the NYPD for years um, had engaged in a gigantic stop and frisk program. And a lot of people started complaining about it, but it was really difficult to come up with evidence of racial bias. Um, A lot of people suspected that was happening, but it's very hard to show. And um, eventually there was a class action lawsuit and um, police officers and sergeants and policymakers were forced to finally sort of testify under oath. And what they learned was in fact, officers were routinely instructed to stop um, black or Hispanic um, males within a certain age. They wanted uh, young, uh, young males stopped. And then they were asked, well, well, why? Why were you doing this? Why were you targeting this uh, racial group um, and, this, the, and young people within this racial group? And, and the answer was, um, because we believe that they have a greater propensity to have guns or drugs. That's exactly what they said. And it turns out, though, that um, during the course of the trial, it showed that um, even though that was their assumption, the assumption was just flat out empirically incorrect. That um, even though they stopped, you know, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, young um, black males and young um, Hispanic males, their hit rate, meaning the rate at which they actually found any drugs or guns, was terrible. Yeah. It was so bad that it um, it would have been um, better if they had just randomly stopped people. Um, so their their assumption was way off. Uh, and the federal judge who handled this case um, did the right thing. Uh, she said that this was both a violation of the Fourth Amendment and a violation of the Fourteenth Amendment's uh, Equal Protection Clause, meaning either way you looked at it, it was either a violation of equality or it uh, it failed the rule of reason. Empirically, they were touching people, grabbing them, holding them, searching them, even though there wasn't a factual basis for doing it. Yeah, I mean, and this gets to one of the central points of your book early on, which is uh, sort of the use of real life data as it's produced over time 
this actually gets directly into Trump's travel ban, and that's where you start your book. Um, this was also the subject of a recent article that you wrote for Politico. Um, and, you know, the legal argument of most cases against the travel ban was on the basis of equal treatment under the First and Fourteenth Amendment. So that's a straight equality argument. Um, I should actually note for my listeners that you single out one of the sole successful state legal challenges to Trump's travel ban was brought by Washington's own Attorney General Bob Ferguson, who framed his argument on behalf of university students and faculty, saying that the ban interfered with their ability to study and work. So he uh, successfully used that as an direct approach. But the third iteration of the ban was, of course, upheld by the Supreme Court um, in part because of the introduction of a visa waiver program. Now, we've had some time to see what this visa waiver program looks like. There's enough data to to examine. And you say um, one of the things that does make this right for a challenge is that there is now uh, enough to measure the effect that the law has had. So in your mind, what might be a practical legal challenge here? Right. So um, I, I talk a lot about the travel ban litigation uh, in uh, in my book. It's it's the first thing that I sort of show the readers. I plop them right into that weekend when uh, the travel bans originally uh, implemented, like on a Friday. And and it, and it's because I want readers to to remember to sense the sort of indignities, the disruptions in the lives of um, of some of us, right? Of of um, uh, Muslim travelers and families um, who had been expecting people to be coming uh, to the United States. Well, listeners to um, this show will definitely remember that very vividly because a lot of us were down there at uh, SeaTac Airport, uh, and a, a lot of our elected officials were as well. So it was, yeah, it was it was quite a quite a time. That's exactly right, and that's and that's the other reason why I I, I put people back in that moment because it's also um, it's also a moment where I think it shows the best of our our constitutional tradition, right? Our legal and political tradition of, of people rushing kind of out of doors uh, to help some, um, you know, despised group um, kind of protect their rights. And it was really kind of a, a remarkable moment um, and um, a real moment of activism and kind of coalition building between uh, people of different faiths, uh, people of different um, uh uh, parties, right? Sure. Uh, you saw um, other people sort of looking at this uh, beyond uh, sort of a party issue. But um, as we know, um, uh, you know, eventually the Supreme Court of the United States, um, uh, in a in a very slim five four decision, upholds it, and that's sort of been the, the 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 final word for now. But as you point out, I wrote a piece in Politico recently, um, kind of going back and um, inviting a rereading of that opinion. And and I focus on Justice Kennedy's um, concurring opinion because without his vote, um, it wouldn't have been upheld. And what's interesting about what he says is he he, he very strongly says that uh, religious equality uh, is an important principle, and it would apply even the nat- um, national security context. Right. Meaning so he said it was the- only valid if it wasn't a vehicle for religious bigotry. So Correct. If, Correct. if that could be proved, I'm wondering, would that be an effective challenge on those grounds? That's right. So I, I, um, I think that the best way to understand that 5-4 loss is that it's a narrow 5-4 loss, mm-hmm. that the challengers were kind of in a hurry um, it was an uh, effort to sort of try to strike it down as quickly as possible. The justices were asking a lot of questions about how the travel ban was being enforced because some of the justices were disturbed that um, uh, they were being that the, the waivers, for example, were being handed out sort of haphazardly 
or even the possibility that the waiver section of the travel ban, the, the third version, is nothing but a sham, which is what some people have been complaining about. But they didn't have enough evidence because there really, there really wasn't a lot of time, or I think in, the, in the, some of the, at least in Justice Kennedy's mind, enough time to sort of sort that out. So five of the justices essentially uphold the ban as it's written. And I think that's what Trump versus Hawaii stands for. What that means is that there's still some arguments left open. And doing some of the, this practical work of equality means that we have to sort of do the hard digging of figuring out sort of empirically how this um, waiver program is being implemented, how, how it's actually affecting uh, real live travelers and their families, and whether it really is a sham or whether uh, people who are applying for these waivers are individually being treated on their circumstances, because there's some evidence that um, the discretion really isn't there in the consular offices. Uh, and if it's not there, then where is it? Is it, is it higher up? Um, is there some sort of wink and nod um, to them saying, you know, generally deny these things? Because that's not what they represented to the Supreme Court of the United States. Right. And indeed, you mentioned that lawsuits in California and Maryland are looking to show that some waivers that have been discovered had been pre-marked denied. Yeah, so that's been some of the records um, um, kind of submitted in those two cases so far, and we're and it's worth keeping a close eye on those two cases. There's been been hearings uh, in both of those cases. Um, the judge in the California case has issued a ruling in the last couple of months or so. Um, kind of, um, I don't like what he did with the equality decision. I think that he made a mistake there in um, kind of dismissing it, uh, but he allows a, a, a kind of an administrative law. Um, claim to go forward. And in doing that, he says, hey, there are some disturbing allegations here. Um, it could be a sham. I'm going to let this um, go a little bit further. And the the reason why that's good news is because that's going to allow the lawyers in that case to get some of these people under oath and ask them questions about, you know, uh, what what is the policy behind the scenes? Are there documents? You know, um, are you denying these things individually? Or are you just sort of rubber stamping a no? Um, so we're gonna we're gonna kind of see what happens there. But I do think that there is still room to make these uh, more practical sort of um, you know second best arguments uh, even after Trump versus Hawaii. Well, look, uh, because you teach constitutional law, I cannot let you go without asking a couple questions about the current situation with. Uh, Trump, Mueller, and Attorney General Barr and the Mueller report. Because uh, when I mentioned that I was going to be talking to a constitutional scholar, my inbox basically exploded. So as you know, this morning, and we are recording on Wednesday, April 3rd, uh, the House voted to authorize Gerald Nadler, who is the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, to subpoena the full unredacted Mueller report from Attorney General Barr. Uh, Nadler has not said if he will issue the subpoena yet, but if he does and Barr doesn't comply, what's next? What's the legal recourse? for the Judiciary Committee. Right. So then, then we would have a showdown in the courts where, um, you know, potentially you have a situation where, um, you know, Nadler is trying to get the subpoena enforced. Um, the executive branch is going to have to explain why they're here. The Attorney General of the United States would have to um, assert a legal reason why he's not going to be complying. And, you know, and then, and then we'll sort of see uh, what happens at that point. Uh, but it would be quite a, uh, a showdown where you've got all three branches yeah. uh, kind of kind of involved. Uh, it's hard to predict what will happen then. Can 
uh, Attorney General Barr be compelled to testify before the committee? Uh, and, and for that matter, can, can Robert Mueller? Yeah. So um, my, my instinct, although I'm not, I'm not the best expert to consult here, uh, is, is yes, um, because of the, the – it has primarily to do with uh, congressional oversight, right, that, that um, you know, these two actors in particular are acting pursuant to legislation um, and, you know, that has been passed by Congress – they're doing something that Congress has authorized uh, in one way or another, uh, and uh, and so that oversight function, you know, has to be able to to play out in a way that shines a light on what's happening. So I think that if they, you know, if if the House insists, um, then you would expect that um, that that there will be some effort to allow this to happen. Now, what happens if Barr says? Uh, privilege. Right. Well, then this becomes much more complicated. That uh, you might have a situation where you know some aspects of the report is is compelled. Some of the things he wants to keep private, but uh, other things could be kept back. Um, now, the, the the good news is that judges have at least dealt with that sort of scenario quite a lot. Uh, uh, especially federal judges uh, are often asked, um, you know, to inspect. Uh, in their chambers, documents that someone uh, has claimed the privileges to, and then the judge will rule on, you know, which of these are legitimately privileged and which of these are not. Um, so it's not as though judges have no experience with this. I mean, I think it's, you know, that's that's definitely one possibility. Well, you know, judges get uh, full unredacted access to this information in order to make their determinations, and it sort of begs the question. Why anything would need to be redacted for senators and or representatives who are on intelligence committees and are allowed to see highly classified documents? Do you have any insight on that? Right. So, so some of the members of Congress um, certainly will have the strongest sort of constitutional argument that they are entitled to see the full thing for the reasons that you've um, uh, sort of outlined. Um, you know, it becomes more complicated whether other members or whether the public has a right to see these things. I myself personally inclined toward, you know, more transparency um, rather than less. Sure. Um, um, but, you know, you, you, there, there's one other piece of the puzzle which we don't know yet, uh, which is we don't know the actual mind of the independent counsel. And, and, I, and I mean that collectively, like we don't really know completely the strategy uh, in how they decided to write up the report um, and also how they decided to farm out cases to different, um, you know, prosecutors' offices. I have a follow-up about that, yes. Yeah, but so that's continue. one of the things that uh, Mueller's um, team has done is that on certain questions, they've basically uh, referred the matter to some other criminal um, uh, branch of, of, of U.S. Attorney's Office, say, Southern District of New York or sure. uh, to the Virginia office. And – uh, and so we, we don't fully know whether, though, um, the office thinks that full release of the report might complicate or interfere with anything ongoing. Because uh, let's imagine this possibility, right? Let's say they do think that complete unredacted access would interfere with that. Well, then that's going to complicate what you know a judge thinks about this whole thing, right? right. That might lead the judge to fashion some other kind of um, remedy – um, or, or even or even change the whole complexion of 
um, how the judge thinks about release and its effects. So, um, so that's one piece of the puzzle we don't know yet. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I thought I was the only one who basically had like the red string wall, you know, up with all of the different, you know, connecting players and like, well, what did, you know, Mueller farm out? What did, And so that sort of leads me to what I think of as the $64,000 question here, um, which it, it does appear that he has uh, given some evidence to uh, the state of New York at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So DOJ guidelines say that a sitting president cannot be indicted on federal charges, but could he be indicted on state charges? Right. So that's that's a possibility. Right. If they if if a particular state finds evidence of crime, they believe it can be proven beyond reasonable doubt, then um, uh, then that could happen. Um, The president or uh, members of his family or his friends who have not yet been indicted could be indicted on state crimes. Um, that's not something that he could pardon them for. Right. Um, so, so a lot of people speculated that maybe that's part of the uh, the thinking here on the part of the, the um, of Mueller and his team. It's it's possible. We don't we don't really know for sure. We're all just sort of speculating. Um, it could be that also some of these decisions are based on um, some sense of expertise. Right. That uh, some of these offices um, uh, acquire a reputation for being a do an excellent job with certain kinds of crimes. Uh, and if they have some interest in what's happened, you know, that could also be a reason why they pass a case here rather than there. Um, but, yeah, so it's all this is all very intriguing. Um, there was one little piece of um, of evidence, I guess. Um, I guess one of a member of uh, of his team was in court the other day. I think it was probably involving um, somebody fighting a subpoena. And um, they said they were they, they said something like, um, well, we, you know, one reason why we shouldn't have to comply with the subpoena is that basically he's turned in the report and this investigation is over. And a lawyer for the Mueller team basically said, no, the investigation is still basically continuing robustly or something like mm-hmm. this, right? And that was a big sort of what? Um, but mm-hmm. I think that that's an indication that whatever they're thinking, they're thinking more broadly than merely, um, you know, we're handing this piece of paper over to um, – the Attorney General of the United States, and we're just sort of going to kind of wipe our hands. So, so, I, so I think that there's some loose ends there, um, here and there. There's there's clearly some active investigations in other jurisdictions, uh, and so we'll see. We'll see is right. I think that's basically the only thing that we can say for sure <laughs> at this point. Well, look, I could talk about this all day, and and actually, if you have the time, I would love to invite you back to ask you more of these questions, and we can just devote an entire segment to it. But I will say for now that the book is Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation. It's out on Norton Books. Robert Sy, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And next, we will have our Week in Review, and joining us this week are Chris Petzold. She is founder of Indivisible Washington's 8th District. Hello, Chris. Hi there. And Shasti Conrad, chair of the King County Democrats, is with us. Hello, Shasti. Hello. Hey, we got the band back together. This is awesome. All right, you guys. Um, So let's start by talking about what is happening with the Mueller report. So it has now been, as we know, two weeks since the release of the report. And all we have seen so far is a four-page summary from Attorney General William Barr. Trump, for his part, has claimed complete exoneration, which would be hilarious if it weren't for the fact that people seem to be buying it. Because according to a Washington Post poll, 48% of Americans now think that congressional Democrats should stop investigating Trump. 
And then on Wednesday night, the New York Times released an article that cited anonymous members of Mueller's team saying that Barr's summation is misleading and that there's potentially stuff in there to implicate Trump. The piece also said, quote, some members of Mueller's team are concerned that because Barr created the first narrative of the special counsel's findings, Americans' views will have hardened before the investigation's conclusions become public. So the question is, how do we as Democrats and activists get the narrative back from somebody like Trump, who, as much as I hate to admit it, is really good at owning the narrative? Shasti, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think that it you know requires message discipline on on our side, and that we have to be a steady drumbeat with the fact that we don't know what is in that report, and the fact that it went to you know Trump's team before it went to the public is is deeply problematic, and we can't we can't give up. We have to keep just you know reminding folks that uh, clearly that you know everyone around Trump. Uh, has been found to have some sort of criminal activity, and we you know the indictments are piling up, and so you know it shouldn't be dismissed. But we have to. I think we're so hungry for some sort of answer or something that like it's like the you know the ripcord that pulls us out of the mess that we've been in for you know these last couple of years. Yeah. That you know we have to we have to stay true to the path and you know keep focused on you know, the activism that we are all engaged in and holding um, elected officials feet to the fire. Um, but I'm, I don't, I still think it's, it's this new story that has come out and is in the cycle. It's not really, it's not the answer um, that we, it's not the end of the story. You know, it's really right. just, it's a marker in it. Um, but we just have to keep, keep pushing that, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire and that we we can't disengage. We have to keep we have to keep working. Well, you know, I will say as a follow up that uh, in the Washington Post poll that I cited earlier, some 83 percent of people do want the full report to be made public. So I guess um, some people were at least curious, even if many of them are also, you know, dumb. Um, <laughs> Chris, do you have thoughts about uh, how we reclaim the narrative? Well, I think that, uh, you know, people need to remember that this isn't a dictatorship. Um, he's not a king. He's not our supreme ruler like North Korea. And that uh, Congress uh, is constitutionally obligated to be a co-equal branch uh, of government. And part of their mandate is oversight. Uh, the GOP, in, when they controlled the House, completely uh, missed the boat on that and neglected, shamefully neglected their duties there. And so right. uh, this is just uh, Congress catching up um, on on the investigations that should have been occurring for the past two years. Oh, I totally agree. But, you know, in terms of investigating Trump, if people are souring on Democrats investigating Trump per that number that I cited earlier, uh, and these investigations will likely drag on well into 2020, do you worry about voter fatigue and how that might affect the presidential race? No, because we have we can walk and chew gum. We can investigate uh, Trump and just wait till the investigations first yield um, what he's actually been up to. I mean, we have no idea, really, other than what has been leaked and what is uh, showing up in the um, indictments and uh, uh, actually prison time that some of his closest uh, advisors have gotten. Right. Um, so I think that we need to, you know, let the Congress um, keep working 
working through these investigations. Let the 2020 candidates, you know, talk about, you know, what we're about um, while we keep uh, doing our job here in terms of oversight. Yeah. I mean, you talk about uh, the full report coming out and maybe contradicting what Barr has said. I was personally very relieved when the New York Times piece came out um, because, you know, when Barr released his memo saying that the report wasn't conclusive about obstruction, I was like, Trump obstructed justice on TV, you know, with Lester Holt. Um, And also, I will say there's one area of possible recourse if Barr tries to sit on the Mueller report that I that occurred to me. Um, The New York Times article, that was the first time that Mueller's team have ever spoken out. And uh, it was, Mm -hmm. of course, anonymously. But I would like to think that if Barr doesn't release the full report, that there's a possibility that maybe some of those Mueller investigators might leak some stuff out. So anyway, Mm -hmm. a a fellow can dream. Um, But Shasti, do you worry about the issue of voter fatigue uh, potentially over uh, investigations into Trump dragging on into 2020, particularly among moderates? I do. I mean, I I am generally slightly concerned about how early we're starting this cycle. And I think it, again, speaks to the fact that, you know, so many of us want to be able to talk about anything other other than Trump. Um, mm-hmm. And we want to. Um, so I, I do worry that, you know, we've got a long, you know, year and a half um, or so before, you know, we're going to be electing a new um, Democratic president. Um, and so I do worry about the fatigue aspect. But I think as as Chris pointed to is that we need the Democrats to be telling we need to be telling our own story. Um, we've spent the last two years very Trump focused. And, you know, I think part of the reason why we've backed up um, the start of this presidential cycle is because of the, you know, the real desire and interest in, in setting the narrative about, you know, what are our values um, who are our shining stars? And my hope is that you know the the contenders will keep the focus on on us and and how we can bring the country together um, more than just tra- chasing Trump down rabbit holes. I think as you look at the candidates as they've you know announced and as they've come out, the most successful ones have set forth their own values, their own story. They, the ones who have gotten in trouble, um, have been the ones I think that have tried to, you know, play Trump's game and that it doesn't wear well on our side. And so we've got to just keep keep that focus. Yeah. So like Chris said, walk and chew gum. Uh, We can investigate and hit bread and butter issues hard. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously we do need to keep pushing for the full report to be released. And in fact, on Thursday evening, there there will be uh, over 300 protests happening nationwide. And, you know, this raises a question I've been thinking about for a while, uh, because I suspect that this situation with the Mueller report is going to get worse before it gets better. And I wonder how we meet out our responses over time. In other words, how do we maintain the impact of our protests if and when the situation gets worse? Chris, you're the you're the activist. What are your thoughts? I think we need to. um I've been thinking about this because I, I feel it too. I'm worried about it too. Yeah. But I think we need to um, time our actions with things that are going on in Congress. So um, uh, Representative Nadler gave um, a bar a deadline of uh, yesterday or the second to yeah. uh, for bar to release the full report unredacted to Congress. Um, and we have timed our protests 
um, accordingly to that, meaning like we give him a day and then if he still doesn't do it, then we're on the street. And I think we need to um, work, work with Congress in a way in terms of supporting them and saying, all right, we're going to highlight uh, this deadline that was missed. And by the way, why are we all surprised that the Trump, the guy Trump appointed to cover up uh, his crimes is actually covering them up? Right. Um, anyway, so I think we need to um, really be strategic about how we time these actions um, so that we can uh, work with Congress uh, from here, from the ground, um, and highlight those points in time. Yeah. Uh, and say that, yes, this is what the American people expect through the request from Nadler. Yeah. The, yeah. Totally. The demand. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> well, Shasti, so over over the long term, um, how do we keep not only ratcheting up the protest response, but how do we keep people from burning out? I mean, I think, you know, I think we just have to keep people, you know, connected to the impact. You know, I think folks, I think where people burn out is when they feel like nothing is changing, nothing positive is coming from their action and their activism. And so, um, you know, as much as it is important to, you know, hold these national leaders accountable, um, there's a lot of really exciting stuff that's happening locally. There's really great races that are happening, you know, right here in our in our region. Um, there's new candidates that are running that I don't think they would run if we weren't in the Trump era and we weren't having to fight against, you sure. know, xenophobia and Islamophobia and, you know, all of these things. And so I think trying to find the balance between you know, having to call out, um, you know, these awful things that are happening from the Trump administration, but then also directing folks back to, hey, here's how to get involved. Here's how to support, you know, so-and-so who's running for the school board, who this is their first time they're getting involved. Um, I think being able to demonstrate the ways that there are good, there are good things that are still happening helps to bring that energy back. Um, in response to the Christchurch massacre that happened a few weeks ago, you know, I went to an event at a mosque um, and, you know, the community response was incredible and it reminded yeah, it really me was. why I do what I do. And I yeah. think, you know, we've got to find those moments to recharge our batteries and remember that, you know, I think ultimately people are good. Um, we just have some pretty awful people that are in, you know, the top spot, but there's a lot of really good that is happening. And so we just need to stay connected to that. Yeah, we're really focusing on um, local races uh, for this uh, November and really connecting back with our community. And, um, for example, I spoke at my city council meeting the other night in favor of a resolution, um, an anti-hate, anti-discrimination resolution in my own city. And so if we just stay connected to our values, uh, that will sustain us through this time. This terrible time. <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, what both of you are saying, um, you know, focusing on what, you know, obviously we can't avoid what's happening at the national level. It's in our face pretty much every day. And it's why we're many of us, why we're doing what we're doing, but focusing on the local, you know, and focusing on the extraordinary community that we have here in Washington, um, I think is a great way to not only make an impact, but also to draw some good energy, which we absolutely need from time to time. Uh, yeah. Actually, more than time to time. We, I, I need it pretty much every day. All right, so let's shift over and talk about Joe Biden. So uh, last Friday, a former Nevada assemblywoman named Lucy Flores told about a Biden campaign event in which Biden allegedly kissed the back of her head and made her to feel uncomfortable. Uh, additionally, a woman named Amy Lapos 
alleged that Biden rubbed noses with her at a fundraiser. And then on Tuesday, the New York Times published stories of two more women who say that Biden touched them in ways that they say were not appropriate. So in the wake of this, Biden has made a video saying in part, quote, social norms are changing. I understand that. And I've heard what these women are saying. Politics to me has always been about making connections, but I will be more mindful about respecting personal space in the future. That's my responsibility and I will meet it. The question is, is that enough? It is It is notable to me anyway that he didn't apologize. Um, mm-hmm. Chris, what are your thoughts? I noticed that too. I was waiting for the word, I'm sorry, I apologize. Yeah. It wasn't in there. Um, this is a really complicated issue uh, for me. And, you know, uh, I had forgotten about this thing that was happening to me in my, in my 20s when I worked at this company, this uh, exec from the company would come up behind me in my cubicle as I was working. And he would always uh, put his hands on my shoulders coming up behind me when I was at my desk. And sometimes he would rub my shoulders. Mm. And I know that he didn't really intend uh, it in a sexual way. And, uh, but at the same time, he's a person in, in leadership and that really is, it it makes a big difference. Um, Yeah. There's a power dynamic there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, um, even though Joe Biden responded, I think he still has some stuff to learn here. I, I feel on the other hand, I feel bad, um, for him because he really has had a lifetime of service and, you know, for his record, be, you know, it is what it is. We like some of it. We don't like some of it. Um, but he, you know, he really has, um, this social conscience. He's on our side. I mean, let's just compare and contrast him to Donald Trump. I mean, uh, you know, like we need to, we need to keep in mind where, where we're going here and, and what the, what the playing field actually is. Um, but you know, Social norms are changing, and he needs to recognize that, and maybe this isn't his time. Maybe. And it does sound like he's trying to acknowledge the changing social norms. And, I mean, yeah, there there really is, like you said, the very real temptation to say, you know, here's a Democrat who has tried to own up to what he did. He's say that he's going to do better. So, yeah, we contrast him with somebody like Trump who, well, <laughs> we know who he is and, and what he's done. But, you know, the counter argument— I would say, is that we on the left have an obligation to hold ourselves to a much higher standard. What do you think about all this, Shasti? Yes. I mean, similarly, I've had, you know, conflicted um, feelings about this situation. Um, One of my very first political, you know, jobs was actually working for Vice President Biden. I did advanced work for him. Yeah. And and actually in the 2008 convention, um, I remember meeting the all of the Bidens. And I remember um, when Bo passed away, I, I told this um, story, which was that there, you know, I was in this crowd of people and I felt this really warm, um, like presence behind me. And I felt someone touch my shoulder and I turned around and there was Bo and he was this shining, you know, really his presence was so strong and warm. And, um, and then, you know, he introduced himself and then he introduced me to his father and, um, and and you know the Bidens really do come with, they they are a, a force to be reckoned with in a really positive way. Um, mm-hmm. And I've had you know great experiences, um, you know, working with the vice president. And um, however, it, it has always been a sort of well known thing that you know Vice President Biden um, did often invade uh, 
people's personal space and particularly women. Um, and that, that was one of those things that just was kind of a kind of open secret right within the white house walls. And, and, and it was something that people kind of were like, well, you know, it's not great, but that's just who he is. And there are a lot of excuses. And I think in the me too era, what it's doing is it's, it's forcing people to have to confront that, you know, it's not, we can't just let that go. We can't just keep kind of like whispering um, in each other's ears to be like, Hey, let's be, you know, be careful. Um, and then leaving it to women to have to deal with it. Um, I appreciated his, his uh, video that he made. I, had been wondering when something like that would come out because I was not thrilled that it was taking several days for a Mm -hmm. response from him directly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also picked up on the lack of apology and there's been a lack of apology around Anita Hill. And, you know, that I think is really important and, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of square and, and solve everything if he can't take that own sort of responsibility. The other thing that I wanted to say about it um, is that, I have been frustrated with watching as the last couple of days, the um, responses from female um, staffers of, of his, mostly women who are in higher positions of power than Lucy Flores was when she met um, the vice president and women who, you know, uh, were much closer um, in proximity to the power that they got by being near the vice president. And I watched on Twitter as one by one, they all came out and basically said, he's such a great guy, kind of how dare this woman, you know, speak, speak up. Mm. Um, We need, and, and it's something that I have witnessed and experienced myself in dealing with um, trying to hold people accountable that there is um, oftentimes that it is other women who have are the, who are the hardest on um, oftentimes younger women who come out to speak their truth. And it is something that I, you know, it really breaks my heart because it just, it makes, it's, it is the hardest thing that someone can do to speak up against someone in power and to say that this was not okay, that this happened to me and to watch as other women try to make that person feel small um, in part to hold on to their own power. um, It, I, I don't know what we're going to, I mean, it's just, and it seems to be generational in a lot of ways. And I just continue to hope that we can work together to say, Hey, it's not okay. These things are happening and we need to be supporting one another and not finding our ways to, to demean or to shrink another woman's um, experience. And so I, I hope we can do better um, moving forward. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, I just, it, it it seems a little cynical to even ask this question in the face of that. But a larger concern is that Biden has never run a presidential election past the early stages of a primary. And so real oppo has never been done on him at the national level. And I wonder, do we anticipate that more stories like this are coming and that that might be a consideration down the line if and when he officially gets into the race? Uh, Chris, I'll give you the last word this week. Uh, what are your thoughts? I just think it's time for a new generation. Um, and I, I don't mean to um, diminish Biden's accomplishments um, but in, in any way. Uh, and I appreciate his lifetime of service. And he seems like an amazing, warm person, as Shasti was talking about. But I just think that it's it's time for, you know, women and the next generation to step forward and uh 
that's that's what I keep coming back to with all these discussions. Let's move forward. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. You know, I think we could and absolutely should have uh, an entire segment where the three of us talk all about the incredible field of diverse candidates of men and women in the Democratic field. So, you know, let's do that. Uh, For now, though, uh, that will do it for this week in review. Thank you, Chris Petzold. Thank you. And thank you, Shasti Conrad. Thank you. Have a great week. And as always, we will check in with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. He is research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th District, and he has our calls to action. Hello, Stephen. Hey, how's it going, Stephen? It's going very well. So uh, our first action is around the census, which, of course, is coming up in 2020. So as we know, there has been a push by the Trump administration to uh, insert a question about a respondent's citizenship status. This is clearly an effort uh, in intimidation and also to drive up numbers for red states. Um, And as we know, the census determines the number of congressional districts and also federal funding and a host of other matters. Um, Monday was officially census uh, day of action, but it is not too late to participate. So what are we asking listeners to do? Uh, you bet. In fact, that, that was a you know kind of a new one on me, and I was really um, yeah, I hadn't heard of it either until until I just read about it. Yeah, it, exactly. And so I, I was thinking, wow, this is a really great um, effort. So you know, let's talk about it a little bit because it's it's more than just that one really terrible issue about um, you know trying to include a citizen citizenship question to mm-hmm. you know kind of drive down participation. So the issue um, or, or the, uh, the thought behind um, the census day of action was to try and get um, constituents and state legislators who have a lot of power in the in the census uh, to engage each other on um, on two on two topics uh, within the census. And so the first one is just for um, constituents to um, ask their legislators to speak out to include um, in their you know in their public meetings and in their um, written literature um, more information about uh, the census and what's at stake and why it's important for folks to participate and and for the government to fully support the census. And the other thing that they're encouraging us uh, constituents to reach out to our legislative for is there's actually a number of things um, that the state legislators can do that will um, improve the effectiveness and improve the accuracy of the of the 2020 census so um there's there's a lot of things that they can do and there's a great resource that um, i'm sure you'll give your listeners uh, uh, links to um it's called the state innovation exchange uh, six is the acronym that it goes by they have a fabulous PDF document that you can share with your legislator that they kind of gives them, you know, kind of a uh, census for dummies. It gives them a real great uh, set of resources in, in just a few pages oh, that those great. legislators can use. And, and in fact, I, I sent, uh, I, I called my legislator and I said, hey, do you, uh, would you be interested in getting this link via email? And they all three said, oh, yes, we'd like it very much. So I just emailed the, the link to them. And so, so now they've got it. Well, it should be an easy lift uh, to get your legislator to take action on this as their job may depend on it. So <laughs> um, it, 
exactly so. So I, you know, I should also uh, mention that there are at least 59 bills from 25 states, that's half the country, um, that they've been introduced to support the 2020 census preparation. Um, and so, yeah, so they're encouraging things like uh, the authorization of state complete count committees, uh, funding of census outreach programs with an emphasis on hard to count communities, uh, and of course, condemning the inclusion of the citizenship question. But they're also looking to end prison gerrymandering. What can you tell us about that? You know, that was a, a boy, have I learned a lot since the 2016 election. So yeah. one, one thing that I've learned about that I had never heard before is this issue called um, prison gerrymandering. So fundamentally what that is, is um, even since the first um, census, typically what happens is when uh, we count the population of, a, of an area, we include um, people that are incarcerated in the district or in the area where they um, are incarcerated where the prison is. And, and that's not anything new that's been happening for a long time. But a, as people have looked into this issue, what they've discovered is this is a little anti-democratic in the same way that, uh, you know, packing and cracking districts and, and, you know, setting up state legislative districts so that, so that a minority of voters can select the majority of the legislators. So what happens here is that, as I said, um, prisoners will be counted in the district where they where the prison is. And a lot of times, just coincidentally, those prisons happen to be in, in places that are sparsely populated or at least have a little bit lower mm-hmm. um, population. And so what will happen is um, that these kind of sparsely populated districts appear to have an inflated population and they actually end up with more representation because they've got this artificially inflated uh, population um, than they would normally have. Now, if prisoners were allowed to vote, that would be no problem because, you know, one person, one vote. But but in fact, what happens when people are getting uh, uh, sent to prison is they lose their right to vote. So, in fact, there was one example I was reading of of a district in, um, in uh, Texas where the prison population there is so big, it constitutes 12 percent of this particular district. So what ends up happening is 88 voters in this district where the prisoner is has the same representation in uh, the legislature that 100 voters in Houston or Dallas have. And that's just, you know, fundamentally anti-democratic. Sure. So the solution is, rather than counting them in the place where they reside, where they are domiciled, if you will, where they are imprisoned, we just count them in their last known address, um, which is a lot of times what will happen with college students and military in, in other states as well. And this would not affect the number of seats that we would get in Congress. Washington would still get 10 prison seats. It's up to us where we draw those districts and how we draw those districts. And so this would just make our local legislative districts uh, a little bit more representative of, of the voting population. Well, I that is fascinating. And I like you, I have learned so much uh, over the last <laughs> two years. It's been, I guess, a silver lining of all of this. All right. So the next item has to do with judicial nominees. Um, so as we know, Senate Republicans have been jamming through just an alarming number of right wing ideologues into judicial appointments. And I don't think I have to remind people that these are appointments for life. So now Republican Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma has introduced Senate Resolution 50, which would cut the hearing time for these nominees down to two hours. So just refresh us, how much time do nominees currently get? So currently nominees get uh, 30 hours of uh, debate. And again, what uh, people maybe would want to recall is that, you know, what will happen a lot of times for 
what in the past were non-controversial. These are lower-level judges or, or nominees generally. This, the Senate would waive the requirement for 30 hours and say, you know what, we don't need a debate or we can just get away with a few hours. And so since the Democrats in the Senate are in the minority and they now have very few levers that they can pull to try and block Trump's agenda, one of the things that they are doing is they are defaulting to asking for 30 hours of debate for every nominee uh, and every judge, no matter uh, how low level they are. Now, Mitch McConnell likes to say, well, I'm just doing uh, the same thing that the Democrats have done. And it is true that during the latter part of Obama's administration, Democrats put in a similar rule, which has since expired, and McConnell's trying to put it back in. But what's fundamentally different, and I didn't realize until recently, is um, what they did during the Obama administration, Republicans, is they blocked so many judicial nominees, and they're trying to pack the courts. Um, they, they blocked so many judicial nominees that um, there was a huge vacancy um, when President Trump was was inaugurated. And what they're trying to do now is fill this huge number of vacancies. Yeah. Um, and in fact, McConnell, after he complains about the Democrats, actually brags about the fact that um, President Trump has already confirmed 37, I think it's appeals court uh, judicia, ju judges, Whereas during the whole eight years of the Obama administration, uh, the Senate was only able to confirm 55. But as so, we know, McConnell was impervious to shame. So Yeah, true enough. But so they're, they're confirming judges at a four times faster rate, and they're filling up all these vacancies with uh, lifetime appointments. Their hope being, if, if we can jam these through by cutting down the number of hours of debate right. in the next two years— we can fill up all the vacancies by the end of Trump's uh, first term. Oh, and whether he's reelected or it's a Democratic president, the next president's not going to have anybody he can nominate. Right. Well, thank you, as always, for uh, for clarifying what are often very murky topics. Uh, so your expertise is very much appreciated, Stephen, and we'll talk to you next week. I am definitely a murky expert. Uh, you're very welcome, Stephen. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> okay, cool. And as promised, we will close the show with a song from our friend, Seattle singer-songwriter Harris Schwartzreich. His new album is entitled My Inner Voice Will Ring. Here's the song, The Way I Came. I tried to fly I missed the ground Snapped a branch of pine Rode an Jeez. There ain't room for
for me. Someone take my place. Well, that's how I thought. Alone at home. Until I played the message on my phone. It was a call to all of us. Help us, save us now. For myself, lack of a cause made me run in shame. I'm going back the way I came. A maglev train to a zeppelin pad down south to war or down the drain. Fletcher in my hand, crosshairs on my brain. I slide down my eyelid, there is steady as my with a plan If I survive Be true my I'm going back the way I came Wrong or I'm right We're all dust and green I'm going and that'll do it for this week's show. I will have a link to Harris's release party as well as a link to where you can get the full album. And as far as that goes, for links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guest, Robert Sy. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Bye. I can't.